Welcome to the Hyatt 9 News Hour, where you will hear from cannabis industry experts and professionals from around the country talk about important topics while shining light on global issues and discussing cannabis as it relates to politics, regulation and reform, data and technology, science, research and medicine, family and parenting, art, celebrities and entertainment, fitness, sports, mental health and wellness, and plant-based medicines and entheogenics. Together, we are building a stronger community, fighting the stigma and creating change. With your hosts, Jason Beck and Rico Lamite, joined by special industry expert correspondents from around the country and daily antics brought to you by Cannabis. Coming to you live every Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific time and high noon on the East Coast. And thank you all for getting high at 9 with us. Oh, yeah. Good morning, everybody. Happy Wednesday. It's finally hump day. It's May 10th. And today is National School Nurse Day because everybody needs a nurse when you have an owie. It's also National Lipid Day, National Third Shift Workers Day. I'm not sure if we have any third shift workers anymore under this uh, Joe Biden's economy, but who who knows? We must still must celebrate them. It's also National Clean Up Your Room Day for all you... All you parents out there with kids that don't do much of anything else, make sure you teach them to clean their rooms today. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Parents that don't do much of anything else. I do all the things. Come on now. Come on. I'm surprised that you took offense to that. The fact that the fact that you're choosing to identify in that, Rico, I'm I'm shocked. But nonetheless, (laughs) it's also receptionist day and world lupus day. It's also National Washington State Day, and of course, it's National Shrimp Day, because where else would we be without shrimps? Thank you all for joining us and getting high at nine with us. It's also high noon on the East Coast, and please remember to like, share, and subscribe to us on all social media platforms. Use that fancy little QR code right there in the top hand corner of your screen to see where we live on the internet, and you can, we're alive every Monday through Friday on YouTube and audio only on Clubhouse, and if you are joining us in Clubhouse, you can also participate in the show by raising your hand if you have a brief comment on the story more briefly presented. And today we are coming to you live from the 91 Club. And oh, yeah, that's right. Coming up first, we have the dope dad himself, Rico Lamite, who looks like he pulled out his glow sticks at a rave to go and give us all a light show. That's right. He's the dope dad, Rico Lamite. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. And um, I guess I'm... Uh, identifying as a non-parent today <laughs> apparently so me too me too this is, is what it is uh new jersey governor phil murray uh, Mur- phil murray murphy a democrat signed a bill into law allowing licensed cannabis businesses to deduct certain expenses on their state tax returns as a partial remedy to the much maligned IRS code 280e which is blocked plant touching operators from making federal deductions According to Marijuana Moment, Murphy signed off on the legislation from Assemblymember Annette Quijano Monday without formal ceremony, stark contrast to the celebrated photo ops we've seen occurring often from states neighboring New Jersey. The signing went down about three months after the legislature approved the measure with amendments. And while many state tax policies echo federal law, New Jersey says that 
for the purpose of their state tax code, a licensed cannabis business's gross income shall be determined without regard to two, uh, Section 280E of the Federal Internal Revenue Code. As far as federal tax policy, the businesses will still be subject to 280E, like all others, illegally selling Schedule One or Schedule Two drugs from making key tax deductions in their federal filings. But New Jerseyans will at least get to realize a little bit of relief on the state level in 2024, as the legislation applies to taxable years beginning on or after January 1st following enactment. The New Jersey Cannabis Trade Association responded positively to Murphy's act, action making a public statement in support. The continued implementation of 280E placed severe financial constraints on cannabis operators, big and small, by prohibiting them from deducting common business expenses from their taxes. Now, New Jersey's licensed cannabis operators will be uh, treated like any other legal enterprise operating in New Jersey, a sense of normalcy that our industry will cherish. Per the article, a fiscal analysis released last year found that the bill will likely have mixed economic impacts. On one side, the decoupling from federal 280E policy is expected to result in intermediate annual loss of revenue for the state because marijuana businesses would be eligible from relief from taxes that they currently pay. On the other, on the other hand, the Office of Legislative Services, or OLS, said that providing access to these deductions and credits may also help generate more economic activity by cannabis businesses. And so the state and local governments that tax cannabis businesses might indirectly realize an interminate amount of additional annual revenue. It's a much needed positive for legal operators and industry struggling on every level across the supply chain due to the current economic state of America. Now we're in the tail end of a hyperinflationary period and product pricing continues to commoditize. A report released earlier this week by Whitney Economics revealed cannabis Companies paid more than $1.8 billion in federal taxes, overpaying um, in 2022 compared to non-cannabis businesses as a result of 280E. Hopefully more states will be taking Governor Murphy's lead on this one. It's the very least that could be done for an industry that brought in an estimated $13.2 billion legally last year, is expected to spike to more than $33 billion by the end of this year, and has projected annual growth rate of 14% through 2030. Just as no one is morally required to answer a robber truthfully when he asks if there are any valuables in one's house, so no one can be normally or morally required to answer truthfully similar questions asked by the state. Those are the words of 20th century American economist and founder of anarcho-capitalist theory, Murray Rothbard, who argued in 1982 that the ethics of li- in the ethics of liberty, that taxation is theft and that tax re- resistance is therefore legitimate. If cannabis businesses are deemed essential during a pandemic when everything else is shut down, state after state is reporting billions in generated revenue after opening their doors to adult use operations. And the medical community continues to pump out multiple vetted studies weekly, exposing science-backed benefits the plant has on taxpaying citizens, it's high time for our governments, both state and federal, to return those favors. I'm Rico Lamit, Dopa's Dad on the Street for Hyatt Nine News. I'd like to get the rest of the team on this one. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for bringing that article forward because we can't talk enough about the fact that the way that we're being taxed is not fair. It's not reasonable. It's not even something that will help businesses survive. I'm thankful. Mm-hmm. 
um, that the state is recognizing from a state level that we're that these business operators need some sort of relief, but it's not going to be enough. 280E is murdersome to businesses. It, that's the intent of the law <laughs> is to get you to stop operating. And I know this is, you know, just, you know, way idealistic, but there's just a piece of me that just wishes every single one of us operators would just tell the government to go shove it with 280. <laughs> that works out us all. Yeah. You get to wear uh, prison clothes and eat their shitty food if you do that. So. I know. I know. And Only if they catch you, Dale. Killer. And trying to get the federal government to back away from it. They're making so much money right now. They're making a killing. There's no motivation. When people ask why the laws aren't changing, this is why. The government gets so much money out of 280E and they don't even have to try for it. Nope. Nope. So why would you change? Somebody was giving me money that I didn't have to have anybody do anything to get. But here's the thing. I might doing it. Well, here's, here's the thing with uh, the uh, the Whitney Economics uh, study that was done that was released earlier this week. Um, they said if we actually had tax relief, you would have a lot more robust businesses and you would have people actually um, of not just surviving, but thriving. And you would have more revenue brought in uh, legally and you would have people, you just have businesses expanding. You'd have more opening and that would actually stimulate an offset in a more positive way than just keeping things the way they are right now. I know, I know Bo who wrote the report and yes, there've been multiple reports before that said if the government did away with 280E, they would do better on taxes because business would be doing better and they could put more money into the economy. Uh, so I, I don't know why these reports are never used as talking points. No one ever brings them up. They need to be talked about. Um, and while 280E needs to go away, it's not the only tax that's killing this industry. Um, the exorbitant taxes all over, um, excise taxes, all these different taxes from the state, the federal, the local level, all of them. There's, it's just too much. Until this, until this plant is taxed normally, and I'm not talking about just 280E, tax like any other crop, we are not going to survive. Yeah. Agreed. Very, very true, Gretchen. Yeah. And what's, what's also very important to mention when you talk about it just as a crop, Gretchen, is the fact that the data that we're seeing coming out of the states that are allowing cannabis commerce to happen and, and are actively having cultivation as, um, as an ag agricultural good, we're seeing that it's a primary revenue generator in these states. I mean, like in the tip top, right out of the gate. So I don't know. The federal government just needs to get their shit together. Seriously. Like, this is embarrassing. It's the problem with the way that legalization is rolled out, though. Because we, did, we didn't have an event like the end of Prohibition in the 1930s. This has been piecemeal. And the feds have dug their heels in. And, you know, now they're polarized in places where you just can't shake them loose. And everywhere down the line... The, the cost of regulations is also killing the industry. Mandy, you know this only too well. Just when you sit down and do your SOPs to run a business, you got to pull out the, the damn regulations and write pages of them. And I'd like to have someplace like the Wharton School do an evaluation of how much you can take away from a business through needless regulations and taxes and expect the damn business to survive. Yep. Black market's going, yeah, or they're unregulated market. Mm -hmm. Sorry, the, that market's just going, hey, I don't have to do anything. The price started at mm -hmm. 8000 in my trunk. Now I'm going to drop it to 1500 It's going to go to 1000 Whose eyes bitter? Off they go. 
boom, people got their weed. So and that's we're what they're keep... up against. And they're just not winning, not even close. Yeah. Not even by a long shot whatsoever. We're going to take it to a commercial. We're going to come right back. Oh, yeah. You know what time it is. That's right. It's Tuesday over here at Green Street, and we got Smoky Vanilla with us in the building. So that's right. It is time to stretch and smoke. We just got done smoking. Now we're going to stretch it out, and then we're going to smoke again. Let's go. I'm Smoky Vanilla with my background in kinesiology and bodywork massage and assisted stretching. You got to come check it out, baby. Check me out on IG at Smoky Vanilla One Stretch and Smoke, Twitter Smoky Vanilla, Social Club Stretch and Smoke, or also on Sports Recovery by Dan and Jam. If you want to feel as good as I look, then make sure that you get a Stretch and Smoke in with Smoky Vanilla. Yay! <laughs> Yeah, no, I like the so at the end. <laughs> I'm so glad that I don't know. I can't not laugh. Y'all yes. know who it is coming up next. The industry's longest continuously operating retailer and assistant key grip for Tucker Carlson's new Twitter news show. Jason, I'm so excited. Back. <laughs> oh, yeah, Rico, you know. I mean, I can't wait to see Tucker. I'm sure you on can't. I'm sure you can't. Who's the first guest? Is it going to be the uh, recently uh, $5 million in the whole man? It's, no, I doubt it. I doubt it. It's probably going to be some crazy wackadoodle, but whatever. <laughs> but today, there's a lot going on in New York. My story was about New York yesterday, and today, again, my story is about New York because there's predatory financing offers are proliferating in the early days of New York cannabis. I don't think anyone is surprised about this, but Dan Livingston has been seeing it since New York's hemp program began. Prospective investors approach, approach licensed cannabis entrepreneurs with shady deals that would seed nearly half of the company's equity. Since the state began conditionally licensing businesses to grow, process, and sell adult-use weed, it's been getting worse. It's like we're in a kiddie pool full of sharks said livingston president of the cannabis association of new york so many people out there are trying to get as much of these license holders assets as they can he says right now the only legal adult use cannabis growers processors and retailers are conditional licenses who are largely small businesses amid the dynamic predatory investment offers seem increasingly common according to livingston and others in and around new york's weed industry and with the state's adult use market uh, taking longer than expected. <laughs> Some licenses with little funding and limited experience dealing with finance agreements are becoming easy prey, they say. Livingston was watching as CANY members seeking investment after receiving AUCC and AUCP or CAURD licenses receive exp explorative exploit exploitative offers such as 1 million investment in exchange for 49% equity in the company since the state only started licensing these businesses last year livingston said it's difficult for weed business owners to decipher what is and isn't a fair deal in a quote what i'm hearing from a lot of the Kurds is they don't know how to value what they've got, Livingston said. They don't even know what their license is worth. They don't know 
who's but where these numbers are even coming from. Well, I'll tell you right now, those licenses aren't really worth anything because New York's never going to clean up its mess. But nonetheless, Cannabis Control Board Chair Termaine Wright told New York Cannabis Insider that the MRTA defines and prohibits predatory investing deals. She added that the licenses can access at the licensees can access help assessing out investment offers from groups, including the New York City Department of Small Business Services, the local bar associations, and local development corporations. In a quote, we offer a lot of technical assistance which can afford people access to lawyers who will help them review any loan terms and financing agreements that they would like, Wright said. However, it seems like New York is experiencing a proliferation of dubious players offering small business license deals that might technically be allowable, but would give near majority equity to a financier, Livingston said. It's difficult to say how prevalent these situations are because many licensees sign non-disclosure agreements with prospective investors before even sitting down to talk. In some cases, investors aren't even holding up their end of the bargain, Livingston said. He's aware of at least one AUCC company, which had declined, he, which he declined to name, that is suing an investor after the investor declined to pay agreed-upon money. In a quote, it doesn't even seem like the money materializes in a lot of cases, Livingston said. We keep hearing that the money uh, they, were prom- they were promised isn't even coming through. Paula Collins, a New York CPA and tax attorney dedicated to the cannabis industry, said some of her CURD clients have also received offers from investors, including from many from out of state, seeking up to 49% equity in their business. Beyond the percentage of the company's fortunes, some of these investors want to bring in their own team to run the store, often claiming they have special skills or connections, Collins said. In other words, they don't want the licensee to have a lot to a lot of day-to-day management abilities, she said. They're kind of wanting to buy out that curd license, like I'll pay you, but I want you to go away. But don't go, but don't go away because I still need you to have 51% on the license for as long as that's required by the state. From a from a business perspective, it makes sense that the investors would want as much equity and control of day-to-day operations as possible, Colin said, but such deals undermine the social equity aims of the MRTA and conditional licensing. Uh, though Collins, uh, whose clients who, ha- who have turned down exploitative deals are often unwilling to cut off communication with these prospective investors, that's partly because legal weed rollout has moved at a slow pace. I'd call it a snail's pace. Collins said a curd license are unwilling to alienate possible investors offering shady sounding deals because there might come a time where they have no other choice, he says. People are scared. They don't want to burn that bridge. They want to keep that discussion going, Collins said. They want to have that relationship to to turn on in case they get in trouble. Ironically, cultivators seem to be bearing much of the brunt of New York's slow rollout, said said Heidemann Strub attorney Matt Leonardo, which is making it difficult for many AUCCs to turn down any deal promising a cash injection. In a quote, the lack of cash flow and the inability to offload product and maintain a revenue stream has been hugely problematic for cultivators, Leonardo said. Well, how about not selling old ass weed might help you help you out a little bit. But nonetheless, some cultivators are banding together to form collectives, which is helping to keep them afloat by sharing costs. But for some individual growers, uh, the dearth of 
dearth of dispensaries that can buy from their products means it's not clear if they can last without additional funding in the short term. The inability to open more shops has put a huge strain on cultivators. Leonardo said, if you're an individual cultivator, it's really challenging to get the gas to to challenging to get the gas to get there. He says Livingston's CANY's president has been advising members receiving offers from investors to speak with lawyers before signing anything. And it's better to pay legal fees for attorneys to examine a contract on the front end than pay even heftier prices after signing a bad deal. They say, well, you already know that predatory investors are going to be circling around like sharks because we watch it all happen out here in Los Angeles. And I don't see anything different happening in L.A. other than the fact of the super, super slow rollout, slower than a snail's pace. And this is Jason Beck reporting for High at Nine News. What do y'all think? I mean, it's part of the course. I mean, this is definitely, this is the nature of the beast. This isn't exclusive to cannabis. This happens in any emerging industry when we're talking about um, individuals being given something that is valuable, a license. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. Those licenses are worth something. And then we see predatory investors who see opportunity, right? And they, they, they think that they know how to manage businesses better, but they don't get the first um, you know, pull of the ticket, so to speak, in the in the lottery of getting in line for these licenses. So obviously these things are going to happen. I really am interested to see um, what some of these arrangements are currently looking like. I would love to see what some of these offers look like with these guys. Um, but, you know, New York, we've always we've been saying for months now that New York is just moving at a snail's pace and the name of social equity, which is really interesting. But just finding the funding to get these businesses up off the ground is going to be the hardest and slowest process. And you're, you're by creating this, this situation, you're, you're creating um, predatory environment. Yep. And they mysteriously just stopped talking about that uh, $150 million mm-hmm. money fund. Right. Yeah. We haven't heard anything yeah. about that in a minute. Yeah, you're not, that just disappeared. That, that part, I know that uh, reference it. What's that? This article did not even reference it. Yeah. Right. They didn't even talk about that one. That, that's like the biggest one. It was on Front Street forever. Stop talking about it. Um, an interesting thing that uh, New Jersey is doing to try to uh, stop that from happening out there is they are not allowing any of the social equity applicants to even be engaged by outside um, uh, uh, investors from outside of the state. Yeah. You know, so. Well, but that, but Rico, that's part of the problem with the dormant commerce clause. It's still going to come into this. Um, yeah. And one of the problems I have, I have clients who are get their license, get in line because of social equity, uh, residence requirements, things like that. And I typically come into them once a predatory lender's got a hook in them. Mm-hmm. And now you're reviewing, how did you get where you are? And they're, the oversight in these communities with social equity is not real good. They don't know about the site agreements and things like that, that I get a chance to look at that NDAs prevent you from saying, and you take someone who owns technically 51% of a business. And when you read all the contracts involved, they're going to end up with net basically nothing and they'll be sweeping the floor. And it's really hard to watch that because there isn't a lot you can do because you read the, the loan agreements and they're like from Utah or, you know, some other state where you've got to go there to sue if you want your money. It's just it's nonsense. 
and mm -hmm. it's not being supported locally the way it should. This money going to bureaucracies, it's like dumping it in a, in a river. You're never going to see it. These people, there's the contractors that supposedly provide <laughs> the services get all the goddamn money. And these social equity people are being just preyed upon. It's hard to watch. It's, it's, you know, obviously the, the concept of social equity and the cannabis licensing programs are just really new. They're rolling out all over the place slowly and, and the laws and rules are having to be altered as, as um, you know, they discover the need for things to be changed. But I'm really curious about how many social equity licensee recipients um, currently anywhere, California, yeah. Nevada, yeah. I don't care, wherever they're from, how many of them are sole proprietors? How many of them have not taken on major investor partners and been able to bootstrap? I don't know of any. There's none. I knew I knew a couple early on, but they ended up going broke. See? They were Shocking. Yeah, they ended, up, they ended up going broke in Los Angeles because they didn't even get licensing until three years in until until we were in the middle of covid and they were paying 20,000 plus a month for rent for okay. nearly two uh, for nearly 3 years before they even get to operate and then now you get blessed with a license and you can't even open your doors you can't you can't pay your bills exactly. yep. so the, the whole thing was a farce from the, from the fucking excuse me from the beginning <laughs> and <laughs> yeah it was socialist equity you know you know I'll get down with that um and this is why i say every single every single time man i am a firm supporter in the philosophy that was behind social equity i uh, still am um however it is a buzzword there's, there's no true definition of it, so you can't really implement it. And if it's if everybody has a different definition of what social equity is and what it should be doing, then how are you going to put that into law? Period. We should be talking about reparations if you want to if you want to uh, give generational wealth and if you want to have that conversation uh, in, 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 a, in a legitimate sense. Then you need to talk about reparations, but social equity is not going to be blessing people with that. And I cringe every time I hear a new state online we're going to be giving people gen opportunity to have generational wealth like stop lying to people yep that's not it and and, and on that on, on that reparations topic we're gonna move over to gretchen gretchen's our feisty red-headed conservative who loves to tell pot loving lives all about themselves on top of dressing up her dogs in crazy outfits she's the founder of panopia yeah. red she's our very own washington insider it's coming up now is gretchen gailey <laughs> Uh, good afternoon. My headline is come in today from Marijuana Moment. Senators push for marijuana industry access to federal small business loans and services. Eight U.S. senators are urging committee leadership to extend access to federal small business administration programs and services to the state legal marijuana industry. Senator Jackie Rosen led a letter to the chair and ranking member of the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on Financial Services and General Government asking that they include language in future spending legislation that enables SBA access for cannabis businesses. The letter specifically asks appropriators to prohibit SBA from denying applications for four loan programs for legally operating small businesses, small cannabis businesses in states that have legalized cannabis sales and use. Further, the lawmakers requested that committee leaders include bill language prohibiting SBA from excluding such state legal cannabis businesses from participating in or benefiting from the SBA's entrepreneurial development programs. 
Rosen led a similar letter uh, last year, though the requested language was not ultimately adopted as part of the fiscal year 2023 final appropriations packet for FSGG. Uh, Senators are hoping for a different result for fiscal year 2024 this session. The letter, which was sent in late March and highlighted in a press release from Rosen's office last week, was also signed by Senators Ron Wyden, Tammy Duckworth, Ed Markey, John Hickenlooper, Alex Padilla, Cory Booker, and Jeff Merkley. Currently, most banks are reluctant to serve even state legal cannabis businesses due to conflicts with federal law, meaning that these legally operating small businesses often are forced to operate using only cash, potentially jeopardizing public safety in order to do business. SBA loan programs would be especially helpful to cannabis small businesses because they would fill gaps left by the private sector and could expand the availability of capital for many entrepreneurs, including our minority, women, and veteran business owners. Likewise, SBA's entrepreneurial development programs provide critical training, counseling, and technical assistance to small businesses across the country, resources desperately needed by entrepreneurs in the new and burgeoning state legal cannabis industry. Access to SBA loan and entrepreneurship programs would support a rapidly growing industry that creates jobs, supports small businesses, and raise revenues in states that have chosen to legalize cannabis. In a press release about this and two other letters she led uh, that were unrelated to marijuana, Rosen emphasized that small businesses power our communities and are key pillars of Nevada's local economy. She said, I'm urging my colleagues to appropriate all adequate resources for Nevada small businesses to thrive, particularly businesses in our rural communities, those helping to expand access to childcare and legal cannabis small businesses that deserve equal access to capital. We must always take action to see these small businesses have the support they need to succeed. The cannabis letter is one example of how congressional lawmakers are working to normalize financial services for the cash-intensive industry. As the senator wrote, marijuana companies remain largely locked out of simple banking services under prohibition, let alone federally backed loans. But plans are in the works to resolve that issue. Starting with a Senate banking committee hearing that was scheduled for tomorrow, where members will discuss the recently refiled Safe Banking Act. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said during a cannabis rally in New York uh, City on Saturday that after the legislation moves out of committee, he will bring it to the floor and attach social equity provisions, including expungements for people with prior marijuana convictions. Last year, it was rumored that the SBA-specific language might also be folded into a so-called Safe Plus package of marijuana reform bills that Schumer had worked on, but that did not materialize. Um, I hope that the SBA language can get added. I don't think it'll be added in committee. If it gets added, I think it will be added on the floor. Um, And I hope that Republicans, none have uh, signed on to our letter. I hope that Republicans will take note uh, that this is a way, instead of social equity uh, provisions, that do provide relief for minorities, women, and veterans, and is a way that might be a bit more palatable for Republicans to stomach. This is Gretchen for Hyatt 9 News. I don't know. This sounds like this could be a breaking point, Gretchen. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Sounds like having to deal with SARS and FinCEN reports. Yeah, um, that's still a problem, and mm-hmm. that's not going away until you can register as legitimate business. If you're cash heavy, they accept your cash without SARS and FinCEN reports, and you can become a real business. Until we connect that dot, this is all pissing up a rope. Yep, pissing up a rope. 
<laughs> what the hell does that even mean anyway? I don't even know what that means. Well, it means it's hard to piss up a rope. I'd draw you a picture, Mandy, so you could try it, but guys, <laughs> get it a little easier. I need a visual aid for this one, I guess. If it wasn't for that damn gravity, it'd be no problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll see how things go tomorrow at the Senate banking hearing. I'm not that optimistic about this hearing tomorrow. I think uh, the folks that we have representing the industry are going to tank safe banking. So oh, I'm yeah, not they are. looking that forward to it, but we'll see how it goes. If they don't tank it, Cory Booker will. Well, good old uh, Priors will be there Pryor. tomorrow. So. Yes, Priors. Rico, we can't hear you. You're muted, Rico. We should absolutely be Which Cory Booker? To business Corey loans Booker. but this is not going to pass anytime soon. yeah which cory booker um, are you talking about the one from new jersey the center. no we, we've seen we've seen multiple sides of him that's that's what i'm saying he's gonna yeah. he's gonna tank it he's 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 already the you know he already has priors as far as i'm concerned but uh, he's gonna come back and endorse the next week yeah but uh gretchen everyone is loving your hair today apparently so well, my great. hair is oh, fabulous jason Everyone is, everyone is really loving your hair in the chat today, but we're going to go to a commercial and we're going to be right back. I love it. Keeping up to date on the evolving policies of relevant state, local, and federal governments is key to success. When the future of your business is at stake, you need representation as dedicated as you are. With a maze of laws and regulations surrounding cannabis, hemp, and psychedelics, knowing where to begin can be a challenge. Good thing the law offices of Omar Figueroa features a skilled, highly focused team ready to guide you through it all. They're accepting new clients in California and New York. So make sure you check them out at info at omarfigueroa.com. And oh yeah, the commercials are working again. Whatever you're doing, make sure you tap that like button. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And head on over to our website, www.hiat9news.com. Make sure you sign up for our weekly newsletter. And you will get an email confirmation to confirm your subscription. It'll probably end up in your junk box, in your spam box. So make sure you check it there and hit that confirm button while it's in there. Also, too, we have amazing merch for sale on our website. So go on, check it out so that you can get high at nine with us and look as fresh as we do. Control Tower from Highly Educated has perfected the dab. Utilizing the concept of thin film evaporation, you can waste none of it and taste all of it. The micro texture of the SE pillar increases nucleation at elevated temperatures. And with the tower propelling at 2600 RPMs, it's certainly the most efficient dab experience to date. The Control Tower from Highly Educated. You know, I just want to put it out there that I actually got to try that, that control tower. And, and it it's hit. awesome. I know. I'm just <laughs> hundred RPMs. <laughs> oh yeah. Rico, you're on mute again, buddy. Up next, he is a 35-year practicing attorney with 23 years in California cannabis, now founding partner at Armada Law Corp and teaching a masterclass this weekend on his OnlyFans channel on how to piss up a rope. Y'all know who it is. Dale Schaefer. Hi, good morning out there, all you married gentlemen and gentle ladies. Um, my story this morning comes out of Law 360. 
Um, Jason's making funny faces. Well, okay. It's just his nature. All right. All right. Sorry, I was just asking for my ashtray, bro. Sorry. Sorry, Dale. Okay. Okay. I thought you were having a seizure. We're going to give you a CBD pen or something. Okay. No. Um, my story comes out of Law 360. It's a case that was filed on Monday. And what it brings up is a, a couple of issues that are not uh, only problems for our industry, but are now um, new problems in our industry. And what it's the name of the case or the, it, the heading is grow light makers blame for pot farm going up in smoke. Anybody who's been involved in designing and building out a cultivation facility knows that you go get engineers and architects to look at electrical capacity, how much load, and then you go looking for lights. And then you make sure that the, the load is going to meet what you've got in the box and that the lights are not going to blow up and all that kind of happy horseshit. Well, it seems that these guys went to um, uh, some a manufacturer from the Netherlands who made lights and, and these boxes they were put in. And then a couple of um, manufacturers and distributors out of Colorado, and they put these light systems into a grow facility in Maryland. And guess what? It took a shit, started a fire, dropped all kinds of stuff all over the ground. And it looks like this insurance company, which is the plaintiff, did the right thing and they paid the claim. At least that's what I'm understanding here. And this insurance company is what they call a not, ad not admitted company but it writes excess policies. All of this brings up issues I have to deal with my clients all the time. First of all, it involves products liability and negligence. If you manufacture a product and that's ripe in our industry, you grow it, you shape change it, that's manufacturing. If you design or manufacturing the effective product, you can be sued for that. If you help sell it and distribute it, you can also get sued. And it involves mercantility. Is it defective or is it is it fit for its use? So if you take an engineer and goes, hey, I need 100 of these lights. They're high pressure sodium, 1,000 watts. This is what we're going to need. And someone sells you based upon your request for engineering requirements. And this product shows up. You haven't done anything to it. And somehow it shows itself to be defective. That's the grounds for a product's liability claim. <clears throat> so we have a product's liability claim here against these manufacturers. We also have claims for negligence. Now, what I see here is this company stepped up and did the appropriate thing. They paid at least the excess claim, which is $1.5 million. But insurance companies have clauses that allow the insurance companies to step in as your subrogee, subrogee, depending on what part of the South you're from. Um, and they can stand in your stead and go after these companies. So they paid out, looks like about $1.5 million for the damage caused by this crappy light that they're claiming is a crappy light. <clears throat> but what I don't see in this is the underlying company that suffered the damage adjoining in it, which tells me the claims have all been paid. So what I see in the industry right now is not good insurance coverage. It looks like these people had coverage. Um, for damage to their structures, for damage to their crops, things like that, which I would advise everyone to have. But our industry does not have good insurance coverage generally. Okay. So we're going to see these roll out. And I'm always happy to see an insurance company, you know, pay out like they're supposed to. And we'll see if they can go get these manufacturers to be proven to have uh, designed or manufactured a defective product, or if it really was fit to do what uh, the engineers wanted it to do. So that's my story for the day. 
jump on in and tell me if there's any other court cases out there that might have gotten some attention today. Dale, so, do we know what light company this is that, that's, in, that's in suit? Well, the, the company is Light Interaction Argo. I don't know how all that stuff is. They've got some. Oh, man. You just kind of cut out when you said that. Can you say it again? They're called Light Interaction Argo BV, whatever that's mean. They're a Netherlands company, but there's mm -hmm. the trade name here is Beehive 8. Is and um, I mean, they, they list the names of these, these uh, products in here. And honestly, I don't, I don't build the facilities. I mean, I oversee some of them. I don't buy the products. So I don't, I don't recognize the names, but this light apparently caught on fire, had electrical shark or something. And there was nothing to catch the, you know, the molten um, metal pouring out of it, started a fire. And they're claiming you should have had warnings. You should have things to capture this. You should have never put mm -hmm. the thousand watt high pressure sodium there. You did, it wasn't fit together. All that stuff. These are I, I, I'm wondering, Dale. All right, because I'm already smelling a shady consultant involved. Okay, and I'm worried <laughs> that that there was a shady consultant that told them, "Oh, these are the best lights. Oh man, this brand new technology on the market." Yada 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 yada. Are they liable at all since they helped to uh help help to uh choose that as the as as the sale? Dale. Well, every every part of these has a marketing genius in it. Okay. And Mandy, you understand this because you attend marketing meetings all the time. If nobody right. tells someone in a marketing meeting, you can't say that, then you should right. expect all kinds of shit to be said Everything. to sell this stuff. Yeah. Carte blanche. Everything's open if yeah. you if you don't have disclaimers. But, you know, it's also interesting. I, and I apologize if you mentioned this and I somehow missed it. But um, is this a habitual problem for this company or is this uh, the first time that somebody is coming after them for this issue? It's That's not part of this, Mandy. That would be background you would do if you were going to de defend one of these companies just to see what's the bad press out there, what's the history of this, their their resume, if you will, of winning or losing these things. This this is just the start. And a lot of the things I bring to you are just the, the first shot. And we will see, I can come back and let you know if this actually turns into anything or if they're just going to roll over and let their insurance companies, because I'm sure they all have insurance companies, deal with another insurance company and they just may get settled and we'll never know. Yeah, I mean, that's likely what's going to happen here. And especially if it's just kind of a one-off thing. You know, I hate, I hate the fact that when like a one-off thing happens to someone in the cannabis space and we not we on the show, but like the industry just kind of presents it as like this catastrophe that's happening everywhere. And I just, I really am curious about how vast and broad this issue is. Happening well, everywhere at, Mandy. Mm -hmm. It's happening everywhere these lights are at. Well, I have a, I guess. I have a question for you, Dale. And yeah. you said that they paid out or no, it's still under investigation. Oh, yeah, no, the um, insurance company, which is National Fire Marine, um, paid over 1.5. And so they have subrogation rights for the injured party, and they're suing as the subrogee, subrogee, depending on what part of North Carolina you're from. Um, and that's a common thing. If you pay out on the claim and the and they're made, the injured party's made whole, you then have a right to go look for other people that caused it through a negligence action. In this case, through a strict products liability action. When they is. I mean, I'm surprised, frankly, that the insurance company did pay out when they have qualms about this being a cannabis business. Well, um, yes and no. Um, I don't know what the um, 
the laws in these jurisdictions are for bad faith insurance handling. Here in California, my partner settled a bunch of bad faith cases against these insurance companies that they, they hesitate for a minute and they have bullshit reasons for why. And then you just say, well, then we're going to sue you. And then you tend to get things resolved. There's only a couple of companies handling them. We don't have good insurance coverage. That's just the case here. We don't get it. what they call admitted carriers to come in with a a large bank account backed up by big companies and they get admitted because they have all the reserves and the handling uh, history that makes them a good carrier. These are non-admitted and then it just becomes sketchy after that. Right. I, but don't I, we have bad insurance coverage because folks don't want to get involved with cannabis companies? Yes. Oh, absolutely. There's absolutely. still a question about the federal illegality. I've seen that thrown into some of these cases, although in California courts, it gets nowhere, but this isn't a, this is uh, in a federal court. It's sued under diversity jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. So in federal court, if you throw out that's federally illegal, I don't know what it might do. Because um, I don't think this is in the ninth. Well, Colorado ninth circuit. I think it's in a different oh, circuit. That's, that's, that's a different, circuit. That is a different circuit, Dale. I want to say yeah. it's the it's the. the but I, I'm not sure if I'm 100 right on that. But yeah. um, Dale, I have a I have a quick question. Is is it possible that maybe the the reason that they paid out on this claim is because they were doing a dry run with the lights, just testing out, making sure everything worked before they actually had plants in the facility? Um, it doesn't say that in the complaint, Jason. It just says this thing caught things, uh, flammable materials underneath it on fire. So okay. I don't know. It could be. I, we're nice. working on a case now where a generator took a dump the first time you turned it on and the facility couldn't run for a long time. So it's you would think they would hopefully set it up. But what I'm reading here is that they they should have warned of long term use of this could be a problem. So if I read in the lines, this was up and running for a while and they weren't being checked. They weren't being monitored. They weren't told they had to do that. And the thing just went off one day. It sounds real flimsy. Hmm. Yeah. We got to go to a commercial. We're going to be right back. Saman ad. How's it going, guys? Saman Razani coming to you from Green Street here with Jason Beck smoking on the best weed in the world. Did you know that we have an audio-only version of our podcast available on Apple, Google, Amazon, iHeartRadio, and Spotify? Tune in now and check it out. Oh, yeah. Coming up next. That's right. It is... The mother of Carmen Sacramento, who loves to show everyone how an executive lifestyle, being a mother and owning a cannabis business, all goes hand in hand. And you can manage them all if you are a professional juggler like herself. That's right. It is Carmen Sacramento, Mandy Tingler. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good morning, everybody. Today, my article comes to us from my favorite green market report. The headline reads, Trademark Appeals Board Rules Against Cannabis Company for Trademark Case. Shocking to hear that somebody from the federal government would be against us. Um, in a first-of-its-kind decision, the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board has upheld the Controlled Substances Act in a cannabis trademark case despite state-level legalization. According to Law 360, the ruling came in response to a trademark application submitted by the National Concessions Group, a Denver-based subsidiary of Canadian cannabis consumer goods slang worldwide, which is a publicly traded business. 
National Concessions pursued a trademark to protect the brand name Baked, spelled B-A-K-K-E-D, for selling what the firm characterizes in its application as a, quote, essential oil dispenser sold empty for domestic use. However, the TTAB unanimously agreed with the examining attorney's contention that the product is illegal drug paraphernalia and is primarily intended for, quote, dabbing cannabis-based oils. In her presidential decision, Administrative Trademark Judge Cindy Greenbaum stated that Colorado state laws legalizing marijuana would not affect federal law or its laws in other states. She noted that the federal trademark registration, it, she noted that the federal trademark registration the applicant sought would be nationwide in effect, further complicating the matter. The application's rejection also stemmed from a press release by National Concessions, which advertised its products as being from the largest cannabis company in the country. That led the panel of trademark board judges to agree with the examiner's argument, supported by news clippings used as evidence, such as the, quote, official dab dictionary and, quote, dabbing is becoming a new way to get high. Greenbaum also clarified that the application differed from registrations granted to products like tobacco jars, grinders, rolling paper, or e-cigarettes, which may also be used with cannabis products but are not unlawful under the CSA. Pamela Hirschman, the national concessions lawyer, expressed frustration over the decision, citing the legality of cannabis in the majority of states. She argued that there should be a way to protect both consumers and companies from infringement. The client has not yet decided whether to appeal the decision to a federal appeals court. At this point in time, the trademark office is very hesitant to allow registrations for goods that could be considered covering goods that could be considered drug paraphernalia, she added. You guys, trademarking is a very important element of what's happening in the business growth around the country. And this is a very important topic that we need to discuss. So, fellow correspondents, what are you thinking? Is this something that we need to be more concerned about? Do we need to pay closer attention to the way that we're advertising our products when we're pending um, trademarking? I don't know. This is Mandy from Hyatt Nine. What do you think? Mandy, well, I think you need to be working with a patent or trademark attorney as you're moving forward with this. I work with um, with some, and what we can do in California is we can actually trademark the product here in California. I think you understand that, um, Mandy. They allow these, even the drug paraphernalia, to be trademarked in California. Across the country, in the in the Patent and Trade Office, we typically trade we put the um, trademark onto merchandise, so we don't have this question of it being some somehow being used as drug paraphernalia hats, shirts, all that other kind of stuff. So you can have your trademark in the patent trade office. And once they resolve it, and Mindy, this may be a case where they take it up to appeals court and they decide that, you know, we're going to allow this. I don't know. We have to have some court rule or they have to take this out of controlled substance act. One of those has to happen or this is going to continue to be a problem. I mean, it's interesting to me that this is, it's a tool. There's no product in it. Right? It's a device. I don't know. It doesn't seem reasonable. Well, because it's a device and you can use it to dab. Um, see, that's I, the argument. I mean, are, I when you're I, doing e cigarette, aren't you, in fact, um, 
using these same concentrates yes. through that electronic means. You are. So it's kind of a fiction, but there's still a stereo over cannabis. I think, I, think I think they messed up on their application. Whoever did their application messed up because if they would have just said that the purpose of it is for um, vaporizing essential oils, they would have had no problem when it would have slided right through. Not, right. not, not, not necessarily. It's been hit or, it's been hit or miss. Um, a lot of companies have gotten through and gotten their trademarks through, and a lot of them have not. So um, it just it depends on whichever. I think a lot of it does come down to how you're marketing yeah. it, right? I mean, once your trademark is done, I'm – <clears throat> thinking that it's probably okay, but don't take any legal advice from me, of course. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when you're getting ready to go into this process, you need to be very mindful from a marketing standpoint. Yeah. Very, very, yeah, very. That's one of the first things you should do, like, like looking into a, a good copyright trademark attorney and um, yeah. just try to push your shit through them. But um, yeah, it's, it's hit or miss with cannabis stuff on both uh, copywriting and trademarking. And there's no rhyme or reason sometimes why some stuff gets through and some some doesn't. Well, it's because they can't decide on the definition. I have a case in, in L.A. right now where I, I represent a guy who's got a tobacco license, but he also sells cannabis accessories. Mm -hmm. Well, he got suspended. So I had a little pissing match with the, the city attorney over, well, if it can be used to smoke cannabis and I've got a definition under our code that it's a cannabis accessory can i sell the same goddamn thing and call it a cannabis accessory and they said you can't <clears throat> so they don't even have this figured out at a local level how to decide if a rolling paper is primarily for smoking weed or for smoking tobacco it's it's just nonsense all the way down the line so i don't know about you guys but dab tools look a lot alike dental hygiene hygienist tools i'm just saying yep <laughs> not saying to not saying to mislabel it but just saying <laughs> they of coke cans does that mean i can't do that Poke right. a bunch of holes in it. if you're out in the, the woods and you got a coke can could smoke yep. some weed so dale my, my question is this um if you get a patent or it's not a patent uh, if you get a trademark rejected um do you have the means like say federal legalization does pass right uh do you have the means to revisit that one well, it, it depends on why it's rejected. Mm -hmm. See, that that's why I bring my, my patent attorneys in initially. So they set it up and they're tracking what's the likelihood this is going to work. I mean, they do all sorts of preparatory work about colors, designs, names, all that sort of stuff and sort of design it. And then they monitor it. If it gets rejected, they try to fix the rejected reason <clears throat> so that you can actually get it uh, trademarked. And if necessary, you appeal it. So it, there's a long battle here. That's why we take the merchandise, because there's no question about the merchandise. We can get that, uh, the copy, the um, trademark for that. And there was a question about, can you trademark art? No, you copyright that. Trademark is um, is like Coca-Cola, the, the way that the cursive is written, the color patterns and stuff like that. That's what you get a trademark for. Hold on, Dale. I thought the only way to trademark art was to make it an NFT. Well, an NFT is is nothing but fucking bullshit. Okay, so right? I don't know what we're talking about here. Well, look out! Look out for those new Donald Trump NFTs uh, dropping uh, to cover that five million dollar loss he just took. Oh my god! Yeah. I was so happy to hear that news. I'm so happy. <laughs> Grab them by the what? Can't wait. Yeah, right. Exactly. Oh damn! He ain't never paying out a dime of that. Exactly. We'll just see. That's definitely getting appealed. 
I just wanted to do community service. That's what I really wanted to do. Honestly, I'm to do a whole bunch of community service because he's going to be out on the campaign trail campaigning for president again for 2024. Doing lots of community disservices out there. This is a civil case. You don't get community service out of a civil case. Now he's got a couple, I hear he's got a couple of criminal cases out there that he might get community service feeding the poor to homeless shelter or something. Where he can't put on his orange makeup. He'll be, oh, he'll, he'll give him some paper towels. <laughs> there was, there was toss some, some paper towels at him. <laughs> they would make him the Teflon Don even more by doing that. Oh, man. This is looking more like nylon right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's because he can see three things, huh? Mm-hmm. You going to get this last one in, Jason? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go into this last story, you guys, that we got up here today. Um, also, too, we want to thank all of our uh, friends participating in the Super Chats. Those is the best way for us to know your chats. But yes. my final story is is of some money. Since we're talking about some money, it, 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 it can make you guys all pretty happy, possibly. Because the marijuana industry overpaid $1.8 billion with a B dollars in federal taxes in 2022 analysis. Marijuana companies paid more than $1.8 billion in federal taxes in 2022 compared to non-cannabis businesses as a result of U.S. tax treatment of the marijuana sector, according to an analysis by industry research firm Whitney Economics. In a quote, this this excess is forecasted to increase to $2.1 billion in 2023, Portland, Oregon-based Whitney noted in a news release. The excess payments are the result of Section 280 of the Federal Internal Re- uh, Revenue Code, a longtime thorn in the side of U.S. marijuana businesses that are legal under state law. Section 280E prevents companies considering uh, considered traffickers of Schedule 1 and Schedule 2 controlled substances from deducting business expenses in the same way as other businesses. The effective results in Federal, the effective results in federal income tax liability calculated based on gross income, not net income, Whitney explained. Between 2020 and 2030, U.S. marijuana industry taxes paid were equally or equal roughly $65.3 billion, including the impact of 280E, according to the information provided to MJ Biz Daily uh, by the research company's chief economist, Bo Whitney. The forecast is based on a total revenue. Revenue forecast of $720.2 billion earned by plant-touching cannabis businesses over that period. And if Section 280E were abolished, Whitney forecasts total taxes paid roughly $30.1 billion over the same period, a difference of about $35.2 billion. The tax burden is so heavy that only 24.4% of, of cannabis operators surveyed indicated that they are profitable, according to the Whitney release. And that is down from 42% of the year prior. What do you guys think about that? 280E, the thorn in the side. Give us a refund, man. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Oh man, that's when we play the Bernie Sanders. The Bernie Sanders play. Uh, that's the injustices never stop, do they? <laughs> Just never stop. I am once again asking for your financial. It ain't going through, going through Jason. Uh huh. <laughs> exactly. Asking for your financial support. Exactly. The federal government, IRS. Oh yeah. IRS. And those numbers are exactly why. Um, 
in any form of descheduling cannabis, we're going to have to have a federal excise tax because we're going to have to put some type of shortfall into that big hole that the IRS is currently eating off of. Yeah. Oh, uh, what was it? Eight hundred million? Wasn't that um, what they uh, what they gave the IRS for new audits and all that stuff? Right. Oh, and crazy, crazy amounts of money. That's where the money's going. I think they just gave Chinese money though to the IRS. I don't think they gave them American dollars. I'm not touching that one. <laughs> not touching. This, I mean, you know, Bo. What about it? What What do you think about this, Gretchen? This over. I this think. Over- it, I think. I think it's a creative headline that once again doesn't tell the true story. Nobody overpaid their taxes. They paid their taxes. That's what the taxes are. Uh, so we're overpaying because we're, uh, we're, we're, we're yeah. overpaying. 280 is a growth overpayment. I'm not saying I'm not saying that 280 is a good thing, but I love how it's like, oh, we overpaid our taxes. Nobody in this industry overpays their taxes. It's a miracle that anyone pays any taxes in this industry. Well, in all, I don't even know how you could possibly say that. Um, uh, I love you, and I'm offended. Thomas Jefferson said it's every American's duty to pay as least tax as possible. And Thomas Jefferson also was what. I'm not going to get us demonetized today, but um, he was not a very stand-up person, and he fathered a lot of um, children that were well melanated. Just saying. But thank you all out there for tuning in with us for yet another episode of High and High News. Catch us live weekdays, 9 a.m. Pacific and high noon on the East Coast. Big shout out to our live audience members and online supporters tuning in and giving us feedback on the daily headlines and telling us what matter most because we're all democratic and shit over here our tenured industry correspondent team tuning in from all over the globe bringing us much needed variety of in perspective and adding your vetted opinions to the conversation our production team the wonderful jaja simone holding things down over in clubhouse house of fuego and then all of our sponsors as well keeping our av struggles in check and to the haters out there become a super fan put that put that stuff on the big screen we like to, we like to see that we like to broadcast it out to the world. Hatred, hatred, hatred. It's all love from us. Finally, Canvas Sativa L, you're the sacred reason we come here and do this every single day. We love you. We love you so much. It is, it's not Thursday, it's Wednesday, May 10th, 2023. The show's over. You've all been blessed with the top industry headlines. Hope it was enough for you to put in your pipe and smoke it at least until tomorrow. I'm Rico Lamid, the dopest dad on the street. And uh, Mandy Tingler, take us out today. What we got? Oh, it's Wednesday, and guess what? It's hump day, and we're on the way towards the weekend, friends. So make it a good one. Have a good day. Yeah.